Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. To sum the market turmoil that followed Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget was an uncomfortable reminder of the financial crisis. And I think you've got some pretty strong feelings about what happened next, haven't you, Neil? I certainly do have strong feelings because the Bank of England realised pretty quickly that it stood on the edge of the abyss when there were no buyers for UK government debt, something which is almost unprecedented. They realised that they had to do something and they had to do it quickly and they had to do it big. So they said, right, we're prepared to support the market with £65 billion worth of cash. Now, why was that necessary? Yeah, and it leaves this big question, what the hell did just happen? And is it a sign of deep disturbance in the markets? And should we be worried about our pension schemes? So to unpick these knotty questions, without descending into impenetrable jargon, We're joined by John Ralph, a pension consultant. Now, more than any other pension expert, John helped to create this concept of LDI, which stands, I think, for Liability Driven Investment, when in 2001, he was the head of corporate finance at Boots and he restructured their pension scheme, taking them out of equities and putting all the proceeds into bonds. So welcome, John. Before we get into what happened in the last few days, we should start with a simple definition of what liability-driven investment is and what it's designed to do and what role it it played in the crisis. Thank you, Jonathan. Hello, uh, and hello to you, Neil. I don't like the term liability-driven investment, and I I never use it. I think I've been been proved right. You've been introduced then. Yeah, in the events of the last few days. Before we get down into the detail, be very clear that we would not have seen the apocalyptic headlines. We would not have seen the UK financial system on the edge of meltdown Bank of England having to, having to intervene if pension funds' activities in the financial markets had been hedging. If they had all been hedging, in other words, matching your assets and liabilities, there would have been a little local difficulty. But the reason why we've been on the verge of a meltdown is because some pension schemes, a lot of pension schemes, or most pension schemes, and I genuinely don't know which that is, they weren't hedging, they weren't matching assets and liabilities, they were speculating big time. But let's go back to what you did in 2001. So, so you're saying that that wasn't LDI, you were basically hedging your pension fund. Can you tell us what you did? Yeah, well, what, what we did, I was in charge of the Boots Treasury Department. I knew nothing about pensions. That was done by somebody else on a wet Friday afternoon. I was co-opted into a working party on pensions and suddenly realised that Boots is a big company had a big pension scheme, and what we had was a commitment to pay pensions going forward for 40 years, and these pensions were inflation-linked. It was a huge liability. It wasn't a liability that I had gone out and and created. I hadn't gone out and borrowed lots of money, but we had this huge liability. Worse than that, what we had on the asset side of the balance sheet were pretty much equities. So you've got huge liabilities on one side, you've got equities on the other side, The value of the equities and the value of the pension liabilities do not move in line. The company is standing behind the pension scheme on the hook to make good any deficits. So the pension scheme is an unconsolidated subsidiary of the parent. 
the job of risk management should be done by the company, not by you know, amateur trustees on, on a wet Friday afternoon. So what did we do? We set out over a period of 15, 18 months to match the assets and liabilities. So we very quietly sold the equities and we bought matching long-dated AAA, AAA bonds, things like the World Bank and the, the Nordic Investment Bank and index-linked bonds. Having done that, it would have been a buy-and-hold strategy. As you said, Jonathan, very simple, very boring. What are the advantages of, of that risk management? Reduces risk for shareholders. They're not on the hook to fund these unexpected deficit contributions. It's good for individual pension scheme members because if the company goes bust, less likely that the value of the assets in the pension scheme won't pay out their pensions. And if you look at the macro level, it was good for the financial system as a whole, because to the extent that other companies did it, you're taking risk out of the financial system, you're reducing the leverage of the whole financial system. John, that's very helpful. Why have we got to the position today where what you might describe as maybe son of LDI has produced this crisis? Well, I've, I've in the last week or so, Neil, coined the phrase LLDI, leveraged liability-driven investment. That has allowed companies, through their pension schemes, not properly reported to shareholders, not properly reported to the pension regulator, not properly included in their reporting accounts, effectively to go out and borrow. But what that allowed companies to do is apparently take risk out of their pension scheme because they've matched the liability side of the balance sheet. But at the same time, bingo, they're still continuing to invest in equities, private equity, hedge funds, or all sorts of things. So this is a sort of have your cake and eat it situation. Basically, what they're doing, pension funds are not supposed to borrow to invest. So they are basically using derivatives to basically increase their exposure to guilt and long-term bonds, while at the same time investing in riskier assets. Exactly, exactly. Now, there's one quite important link in the chain, boots-matched assets and liabilities. 100% bonds, 75% fixed, 25% inflation-linked. That wasn't enough. We've got you know, as much as the market could give us. So what did we do? We did the first interest rate swaps in 2002. The first one was 50 million quid for 18 years. So what we were doing was tweaking the basic strategy with interest rate swaps. Those swaps were designed as better risk management, and that was all. When you're talking about swaps here, just so people understand what's going on, the purpose of these swaps was to switch fixed interest payments that the fund was receiving from the gilts, the fixed interest bonds it had invested in, into floating interest rate payments, and the idea was that those floating interest rate payments were some sort of hedge for inflation. Well, Is that right? That's just about right, Jonathan. Oh, phew. Boots owned <laughs> the underlying bonds that were paying at the time, say, 5%. Coupon came in on a Thursday and it was paid out under the swap on the Friday. What we received in return was something that was inflation-linked. So it, was, it wasn't floating. It was inflation-linked, which said, we will pay you RPI plus whatever it was. Because, of course, the underlying pension liabilities are inflation-linked, but then the subtlety is that they are capped at 5%. So if there was no cap, you'd want 100% inflation-linked. If you have a 5% cap, you have about 50%. They were called covered swaps, 
And what that means is that you own the underlying bond whose coupon you are paying away under the swap. Yeah, okay, the- just before I bring in Neil, because Neil, I think, has got a lot of uh, questions here. I just think it's worth just trying to recap what I think the situation is that you're describing. You're describing a situation where a, a pension fund, in a theoretical world, it, it is owning a whole lot of assets which are supposed to pay out, say, a fixed return of, say, 3%, and it's swapping that for this um, floating rate series of payments, so floating interest rates coming in the opposite direction. You can either actually hold the bonds that pay 3%, or you can say, I'll hold something else and bet that that will make at least 3%, and it could go up, and I could have more valuable assets. And the risk is that one day you wake up and you find your riskier portfolio is not producing 3%, it's producing substantially less. It seems to me that what the pension consultants were selling was described as higher returns for lower risk. And that, as we both know, cannot be done. And the thing that I find most extraordinary is how many people drank the Kool-Aid, how many pension managers decided that this was a good thing and somehow this miracle could be performed. Why do you think it was that it was so widespread? There's absolutely no question it was pushed by the investment consultants. The investment consulting business model, they don't like a simple uh, boots approach where you match your assets and your liabilities and then, broadly speaking, you forget about them. So they were pushing something that was complex because they get paid for complexity. And And you could do this because of bad reporting and bad accounting. If the company sponsor could latch on to something which says, do you know what? We don't have to put in deficit contributions amounting to 100 million a year because, yippee, we can continue to hold the private equity. We can continue to hold the the hedge funds. We can do all these esoteric things, which, of course, everybody would say. Everybody knows, don't they? The man in the pub knows equities always outperform. But, John, I want to put another proposition to you, which is that... One of the problems with the pure hedged portfolio that you describe is that it was extremely expensive to pull off because it effectively required pension schemes to pour more and more money, which they didn't have, into buying very, very, very low yielding bonds for a very long time. Therefore, you can understand why companies took the view that let's have a punt (laughs) on some hedge funds rather than spend huge amounts of our shareholders' money plugging holes in pension schemes, which then go to lend money to the government. And I think, I seem to remember, you've been, you used to berate them for doing this, Neil. I did, absolutely. And you know, so I mean, if you look at what Legal and General have done, for instance, uh, one of the things they have done is rather than putting all the money into gilts at a 2% yield, they have gone into the property development business for long-term rental, which is not a bad proxy for the sort of liabilities that they have in the long term. They reckon they can make 7 or 8% out of that, which seems to me to be a very sensible thing to do. I think the only way to reconcile these different views is, is basically that companies back in the day made pension promises which were too expensive 
and they got found out by what happened in the last 20 years. And basically, it's been a horrible experience for them. And they have done all sorts of things, including what we've been talking about, which is cake-driven investment system. I call it CDI. Cakeism, yes. (laughs) Cake-driven investment of basically trying to bet on high-yielding, racy assets to close the gap without having to pour more and more money into very expensive, long-dated gilt. You're trying to bet your way out of a deficit. Correct. That is like being down at the, you know, casinos. But you're sitting there, it's two o'clock on the Sunday morning, you've lost whatever the, the amount is. Do you keep on betting? Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. You start off with 100 today and 100 today. If in 20 years' time, the value of your liabilities has gone up to 150, well, guess what? The value of your assets has gone up to 150. Why? Let's suppose interest rates have come down spectacularly, which they have over the last 20 years, and it goes up to 150. The value of the matching assets, which are fixed-rate bonds, index-linked bonds, has also gone up. I don't say precisely one for one, but it's also gone up to 150 because fixed-rate bonds are more valuable. A fixed-rate bond that pays 5% when the market rate is 3% will be worth more than par. So what I want to do is to move on to where we are now, which is what has been happening in the pensions market and what happened when the mini budget came out. You've actually, after all these years of very low interest rates with the very large liability numbers they threw up and the deficits which pension funds had as a consequence, you've seen very sharply rising in market interest rates in the last few months. And basically, if you look at the the five, I think there are 5,500 defined benefit schemes left outstanding, closed or a few still open, I think, mostly closed to new members. Their liabilities, according to PwC, the accounting firm, have shrunk from 2.4 trillion a year ago to 1.2 trillion. So the, the shift has been quite extraordinary as rates have gone up. And overall, according to PwC again, a deficit on these 5,500 schemes of £600 billion has turned into a surplus of £155 billion. So in theory, they should be quite happy, shouldn't they all? The sting in the tail, Jonathan, is we go back to the mechanics of an interest rate swap. You're paying over, let's say, 3%. You're receiving, let's say, RPI+. plus. Um, back in the day, if you're a bank, you're Barclays Bank, if you're NatWest, you're doing... God knows how, what value of interest rate swaps in the course of a month. I mean, it just goes back and forth. That's their business. They're in it to make money. And in order to reduce risk in the overall financial system, there's a netting. Part of that netting is that for banks, if at the end of the day, Barclays and NatWest, they do all their, their, their mark-to-market netting position, Barclays owes NatWest an amount of money, meaning... If all the swaps were closed out then because one of the banks went bust, one would owe the other an amount. And I'm not going to bandy figures around because I'm not sure what they are, but they'll be big. So what does that bank have to do? That bank has to pay over cash collateral. Now, banks are set up to do that. They've got the systems, they've got the risk management, they've got the reporting in place. What's happened is, is that that same mechanism and that same discipline is applied to pension schemes. So when interest rates fall, what that has meant is that the mark-to-market value of the swap, and there's some corresponding gain on the other side, the mark-to-market value of the swap 
value of the liabilities has gone down by X percent, but the mark-to-market value of the swap has gone up by X percent because that's that's the match. But what that means is that if the company if the company went bust, then on that day the bank would be losing money. There'd be an unsecured credit against the pension scheme in the company. So individual company pension schemes have been paying collateral, and when you have a when you have a situation with a fall of interest rates of, that we've seen. The amount of collateral that you have to post normally amounts sort of dribble backwards and forwards and nobody gets terribly excited about it. But when you have a very significant movement, the amount of cash collateral that you have to pay over, and it's done on a daily basis, and quite what the grace period is, when you get 24 hours or 48 hours before they send in the bailiff, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But if you need to pay over, I'm saying, £100 million, and you're a scheme that doesn't have a hundred million pounds in you, you know, cash sitting there. What do you do? You have to start selling the most liquid assets. What are the most liquid assets? Well, a presto, they are gilt. What does that do? Well, it pushes the, the interest rate up on gilt. Good news because it squeezes your liabilities. Bad news because it means you've got to post more collateral. So what we've had is something where if pension schemes were just doing covered swaps, Yes, it would have been a problem, but it would have been a problem on a much, much, much smaller scale. It's when you have pension schemes doing this, you know, 100 million covered and then 200 million naked. In addition to which, in the last, and I think it's, you know, since the financial crisis, the way in which swaps are priced relative to other, you know, financial instruments, the price has gone up. So people have said, hang on a minute, we think we can achieve the same goal without using an interest rate swap, we can do it through what they call called gilt repos. And there's a whole thing about leveraged gilt repos. And I have to say, I stick my hand up, I don't understand how you do it. Well, yeah, I'm lost long ago, I have yeah, to yeah. say. I just want to, once again, try and summarise what you've just said, John. Basically, the sting in the tail, as, as you see it, is that interest rates jumped because of what Quasi announced in his mini-budget, it unbalanced the market in the sense that a lot of pension funds found that their swaps had changed adversely in value and they were, their counterparties on the other side of these swaps said, you've got to put more money in, more cash collateral, to protect us against a possible default by you. And essentially, they had to go and sell some of their assets to meet these calls, which were coming in rapidly. And basically, they had two assets. They had a whole bunch of illiquid equities and private equity, which they couldn't sell, and gilts, which they could sell. But if they sold, they, they made the swap problem even worse for themselves. And they were going to end up having to carry on doing the whole thing again into a sort of doom loop. I, I don't pretend to understand this mechanism. But John, do you have a view on why the index-linked stocks didn't just fall but collapsed? Some of the longer-dated ones actually halved in the day. Yeah, they did. It's, it is worth pointing out, and I've done this quite, quite recently for various reasons. If you look at what's happened over the course of the last year, index-linked yield prices have been falling, yields have been going up. And that's because inflation expectations are going up. Which is, seems contrary, 
to common sense because surely if you have protection against inflation they should improve when inflation goes up. I know that this is not the experience but perhaps you'd explain why it is the way it is. I remember 25 years ago and I'm you know I won't mention the name of the bank major UK clearing bank sitting there talking about this that and then he said see that person over there he is the only person oh, in NetWest who understands the <laughs> Wasn't me. He said <laughs> he has an opposite number at Barclays and at Lloyd's and whatever. And he said they're not allowed to travel on the same plane together. So I'm, I'm, I'm ducking, I'm ducking your, I'm ducking okay. your question. <laughs> uh, Nobody knows, I think, is the answer. Yeah. Maybe God okay. knows. So, as speaking as a pensioner, Neil, are you reassured by all this? Do you think we're? Um, I'm, I'm not I'm, much. I'm, I'm still a bit worried. I think John is John. I, th- I sort of, I sort of feel you've left us feeling with a vague sense of unease. So you should be reassured, but you sh- we, sh- we should be reassured, but we should not be complacent. And what we in the whole of the financial system is hidden financial risk. You need to address that. You need to tell shareholders. You need to report it correctly. And if shareholders are perfectly happy with that, fine. But I suspect they are not. Credit rating agencies, I suspect Moody's and Standard and Poor's and Fitch, if they knew about it, wouldn't be terribly comfortable. But they don't know about it. So be, be worried, but be worried, but not too worried, I suppose. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week. Bye.